This is a Federal News Network podcast. Staffing, keeping all of its available positions filled with the right people, has been an enduring challenge for the Veterans Affairs Department. And VA has a model for staffing, but the VA Office of Inspector General finds the model somehow fails to translate into a clear picture of staffing requirements. For more, we turn to the Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Health Care Inspections at the Veterans Affairs Department, Julie Kroviak. Dr. Kroviak, good to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. And again, we're talking not about the hiring process, but the process for understanding its staffing requirements. And this report was something of high interest to Congress, wasn't it? Very much so, actually. It was directed by the 2020 Appropriations Committee. Basically, we were asked to look at VHA's progress towards the development of a comprehensive staffing model, as well as a timeline for implementation of that model. We expanded the scope a little bit just to include some information about the hiring issues during the pandemic. Got it. And so you were specifically looking at the model and I guess why the model doesn't result in a clear picture for VA executives of the jobs they have open or the jobs they'll need in the future. What is it that you found here? So if I could back up a little bit, you know, since fiscal year 14, we've been putting out reports that describe BHA's severe staffing shortages. And in each of those reports, including the last three where we drilled down to the facility level to get facility directors to cite what they perceived their needs to be, we always put forth a recommendation, get a staffing model. That's the only way you can understand what your facilities need to meet their demand. So those were always directed at the acting undersecretary. We always got concurrence, but actually the issues remain longstanding despite their action plan. And is a staffing model something that other large healthcare organizations, say commercial hospitals and so forth, other nonprofit hospital chains, do they have them? Yeah, absolutely. Staffing models can be a way for any organization, clinical or not, to identify their requirements more proactively and consistently. And even in a large healthcare system like VHA, where the needs of local and the regional populations can vary, this model can still provide an important framework for those hiring and even other budget decision-making. So VHA then doesn't have the same, or should not have the same, precise staffing ratios and models for each of its 140 or so major health centers and the clinics. They have to tailor it to each location? Well, we actually would be in favor of one model that can be customized based on the local needs of the population. And many larger hospital systems can and do do that. VHA has unique problems because VA is also a collaborator in this decision-making and design of the staffing models. So some of the things we found in this report added additional obstacles to getting this moving forward. And so what is the net result of this issue with the staffing model? So it's a bit complicated, but overall, the fundamental issue concerns the effectiveness of VHA's control over their use of manpower. A staffing model is just one of those controls, but it can set a framework that can guide the budget. Who do we hire? How many? Do we staff the care at the facility? Do we go out in the community? These are really important questions and really expensive questions. And right now, they're driven by an actuarial model, which is using historical workload data. But bottom line, VHA, the VISN leadership, the facilities don't have a standardized way to identify the requirements. So you're left with a scenario where no one can weigh the funding against the need. And is that one of the reasons why there are so many openings at VA? 
They do have legitimate hiring challenges, and a lot of it goes back to the reports that we've been doing since fiscal year 14 that talk about the compensation. So, you know, competitive compensation is a big issue. There are geographical obstacles to meeting the demand and certainly in the more rural areas. So it's a bit more complicated in that they don't have the model, but the model is a critical tool to really understand need. We're speaking with Julie Kroviak, Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Healthcare Inspections at the Veterans Affairs Department. And what is Directive 5010-5010 all about, and how does that come to play in all of this? So it goes back to 2017. It was a memo from OMB that put out a requirement that all federal agencies reduce the size and cost of the federal civilian workforce. So VA, a few months after that, establishes VA manpower, And from that, two years later, comes this directive, VA Directive 5010. So there's three primary offices at the department that are involved in what we, what the staffing model or how it would come to fruition. So you've got VA manpower, you got VHA manpower, and then you have this VHA Office of Productivity, Efficiency, and Staffing. So 5010 gives VA manpower the responsibility of verifying, validating, and approving the models. VHA manpower is tasked with determining the workload-based staffing levels, and then this Office of Productivity is tasked with just developing data reports to inform those staffing decisions at the local level. So through 5010, VHA manpower has the responsibility for the development, but there's no requirement or authority for implementation. So VHA and VA can go back and forth developing models, getting them approved, But then there's no authority to implement them, which is a significant gap in the policy. Yeah, sounds like they could generate a lot of shelfware. So what are your recommendations here for tightening this all up? So we made three recommendations to the Undersecretary for Health. And basically, it's to review the roles, the responsibilities, and the number of staff required to develop, validate, but also implement these models. And they have to, from there, determine a timeline, you know, Yeah, we can develop, we can validate, but we've got to put them into place. And Congress is rightfully asking for a timeline as to what that's going to look like. And then there's another recommendation we make regarding some HR Smart VA's human resources software that they weren't living up to some of the requirements in that policy. Imagine software not living up to requirements. (laughs) What a novel (laughs) idea. And if VA can tighten all of this up and get these recommendations over the line, and by the way, do they agree with them? Yeah, so there's concurrence. The problem is the coordination. VA and VHA don't look at the models the same way. And then there's this missing opportunity to actually require implementation of them. So until VA and VHA actually are on the same page, cooperating, collaborating and agreeing, it's hard to be optimistic that these models will actually be implemented and used. And if they were implemented and used in some nirvana, maybe they could all get out of Vermont Avenue and go to some neutral territory somewhere to discuss it. What would be the effect on staffing? It's actually so important to know what you're spending where and why. There's nothing more expensive than healthcare, And you're talking about a program that also you know, provides care within VHA, but they purchase a ton of care, too. And those are decisions that need to be based on a budget. Is it cheaper, better for us to buy cardiology at the facility down the street, or is it cheaper and better for us to buy cardiologists and provide the care here? Without the model, it's near impossible to make those decisions in any meaningful way. 
even if they are heartfelt decisions. And while we have you, what about some of the pandemic hiring and pandemic staffing? What did you look at there and what did you find? So we actually were looking at this surge and really trying to understand how VA managed itself and, you know, meeting those dramatic hiring needs during the pandemic. So first we looked at workforce levels during the pandemic, but we also interviewed every VISN director just to understand their perceptions of staffing during the pandemic. And by and large, the majority of the directors reported staffing needs were met. You know, they had the surge that got them more staff and they also you know, rearranged personnel to meet different type of pandemic-related demands. The business directors reported they were actually happy with the quality of the staff that were hired during the surge. And what happens to that staff now that the surge may not be needed anymore? <laughs> so the hope is that they remain permanent on that front, but you're right, that will be another hurdle for VHA to try and retain the staff that were hired during the surge. Because those people need money to be kept on, and that would come from Congress. And then there is the mission need for them, and they might not match the staffing requirements of a non-pandemic period. Sure. And that's not a problem that is unique to VHA hospitals. So understandably, there are a lot of unknowns out there. Julie Kroviak is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Healthcare Inspections at the Veterans Affairs Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, 
I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that, I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, 
folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.